Now, our scripture reading this morning comes from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. Please be seated. You know, this passage speaks of a gift, and each of the passages we've looked at throughout this series describe the gift of Christ and of his cross from a different angle. But as we think about the gift and the way in which Romans 3 describes it, it's perhaps helpful to think about the category of the backhanded compliment. You have probably received it. You may have offered it. I'm a teacher, so some of the ones that strike me most significantly have to do with the life of the mind, hearing something like, I always feel more intelligent after listening to you, right? Uh, but they can come in other ways. You know, your, your haircut really slims your face, right? Uh, it's a word that's sort of affirmative and yet bites on the back end, doesn't it? And it's not just compliments or things we might say about someone, but gifts that can actually bring with them an implied bite. So this morning, for instance, my two sons ran up to give me mints, as they often do, from the table. And I'd never thought of this before, but Damien kindly pointed out that I might take a hint that maybe they were suggesting something week by week in bringing me these mints every morning, right? Something about morning breath. Um, As we look at the images of Christ and his cross, they not only show us something that God wants us to have and God wants to be for us, They bite because they say something about what we need. They say something about who we are. And this morning, as we consider what it means for Christ to be our legal substitute, to be the one who makes us just or righteous, we've got to fess up first and foremost to the fact that this illumines something about our character, about ourselves. And so I think the first thing that this passage alerts us to is the problem of our sin against God. We see this perhaps most obviously in verse 23. As we're reading along, we encounter this statement, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. He's been talking about Jews over here and Greeks over there, folks with different philosophies, different cultures, and different religious systems. But all of that is at one level mere superficiality. All have sinned. The religious, the unreligious, those who've known the ways of God and those who've been far off, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need justice because we are lawless. We need righteousness because we are in and of ourselves unrighteous and unjust. And here I think we've got to fess up that 
Oftentimes we come and we look to Jesus to be the solution to problems that we've already defined. Maybe not we ourselves, but our culture, our family, uh, maybe our physicians, maybe our employers, maybe our friends or those who used to be our friends, but who have left us. We've had our problems defined by our experience, by uh, the voices that we hear chattering over our shoulder. And we look to Jesus to solve those problems as they are presently defined. But a text like this reminds us that amidst all the other issues in our lives, and there are many, sin is our deepest issue. I'm reminded of the words of the, the Methodist theologian Stanley Harawas, who says, sin is a theological achievement. He doesn't mean that to go and cheat on your taxes is to do something good or moral. He means knowing that at its root, your big issue is sin before a holy God is an achievement because that's not obvious. We know we have problems, and if we listen to others and pay attention, we realize we have issues, each of us. But knowing that we're sinners is something God has to reveal to us. It's something his Holy Spirit has to draw to our attention. In your light, we do see light, as we saw the psalmist say, but in your light, we do also come to understand our darkness. God illumines that to us. I think if we're honest, we we probably knee-jerk at that kind of language, that our deepest issue is sin before a holy God. We can think of a lot of excuses a lot of distractions to point away from that. We might say, but I didn't mean to do anything to God this week. I literally wasn't thinking of God. Maybe I mistreated my friend, my coworker, my spouse, my child, but, but God? And then we read stories like that of King David. I'm always struck by King David. Such a, a rank sinner takes and abuses a woman, kills her husband, and in so doing commits treason against the country that he serves as king, God's people. He's terrible. And Psalm 51 describes his confession. I'm always struck by the fact that he says right amidst that, against you, you alone have I sinned, O Lord. Part of me wants to stand up for the woman, the man, and the country and say, well, wait a second, you sinned against a lot of people. David's not denying that. He's pointing out that the the root issue of his rape and murder and treason is ultimately an issue before God. Long before he has mistreated any human, he has infringed on God's justice. He's fallen short of the glory of God. David in that moment has a deep perception of what's really gone wrong in his story. We might say also, but I'm getting better. You know, yes, I've sinned against God in the past, but I'm on a growth trajectory. I'm getting better. Surely God won't hold against me what was happening early when I was figuring it out, when I was finding my way. As long as I make it somewhere, I'll, I'll not be an unjust person in God's eyes. Of course, this too, we know, doesn't really jive with the way the world works. I'm struck by a story of my great-grandfather. If you happened across his tombstone, you would be impressed. It's in a small town in Minnesota, and it speaks of how he was beloved by his family, his wife and his children. Not only that, but he was beloved by his town. In fact, he served as mayor of the town uh, with dignity and honor. 
and he was appreciated by all. And you might say, well, that's an achievement. By the end of this man's life, he apparently was a just person. But the tombstone in Minnesota is not the only thing, nor is it the first thing I knew of him. Because that followed a life and a family that he had abandoned and fled. And if you go to Fort Worth, Texas, into the Cattle Ranchers Museum, you can find that my family is represented in one room, the one room you don't want to be in, the cattle thieves room. Because my great-grandfather was living in Montana, and he would go down to Texas and Oklahoma, and he would steal your cattle, and he would lead them away. And running away was a theme because he eventually abandoned that family and then he went off to Minnesota and he found another family and he conned a town and he became a mayor, right? Now that's wild. (laughs) But you know what? The The fact that his sins can't be expunged, the fact that the injustice he showed to a lot of cattle owners, to his wife, to my grandmother, his daughter, and to countless others isn't forgotten in the face of his serving as a nice mayor at the end of his life. That's really no different from the fact that everything we do in this age, we understand digitally has a footprint. Spirituality doesn't work like Snapchat. What you do doesn't just fade away like a vapor or a mist to be forgotten. The way in which we behave before our God, our creator, it remains. We know this today, perhaps in a way that people in certain senses couldn't have known it in the past, in that literally everything you say and do online remains. All of us think back to, oh dear, those early years as a teenager when I was, you know, doing things on the internet and so forth, saying things, texting things and so forth, and they they could come back. Everything we do in life remains. And so, Getting better and improving doesn't remove the fact that we are unjust and lawless. You know, we might, we might not oppose the argument that we're unjust and lawless. We might simply try to distract from it. You know what? Maybe I am a sinner, but I've got deeper issues to think about. I've got other problems. Maybe I'm really sick, or maybe I struggle with some particular disorder. Maybe I, I, I've, I've been born into a situation where the economic ceiling is not too high or where the family system is really unruly and and disharmonious. And you know what? The Bible acknowledges all of that. In affirming that sin is our deepest problem, the Bible never reduces all of our problems simply to the pat answer of sin. And so if, if you're struggling with depression, if you're dealing with the lingering results of abuse or of major disorder in your family, of chaos in your workplace, of systemic uh, unemployment or underemployment, the Bible in no way reduces that to the result of your sin. Nor does it suggest that God doesn't care about that. In fact, it's not for nothing that the Bible gives us the language of Psalm 36 so that we can take all of our many hurts and all of our many struggles, those internal to us and those external around us before God. But acknowledging that, it still does insist that each of us, whatever your life is like, each of us has one ultimate deep problem, one eternal issue that is common to all, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, that for all of us, our injustice before God, our lawlessness, our unrighteousness is our most fundamental issue. So the first question I think this text forces on each of us 
is to ask ourselves, have, have I surrendered myself to God's diagnosis? Am I just coming to God to be a physician who will meet my own self-diagnoses? Like a patient who's looked at WebMD and goes in to ask the doctor to write the script for something they have already deduced themselves. Is your sense of your problem, is it really a matter of just maneuvering and controlling your own desires? Paul wants us to acknowledge that God wants to teach us not only how to find the solution, but to rightly understand our deepest problem, that it might be met in Jesus. And that's the second thing that I think the passage points us to. After we've seen that our deepest problem is our sin against God, we then learn of God's gift of justifying sinners. We can look perhaps at verses 24 and 25, most directly speak to this. All who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The sinner is declared righteous and is freed because of the blood of Christ that's offered on our behalf and received in faith. And just as God wants to teach you and illumine in you your deepest problem, God here gives us a grammar, a set of words to understand God's unique, miraculous solution. And I think there are five basic words that are used here that Paul uses like tools to build up our understanding of what Christ is for us as our legal substitute. And it's worth just pausing briefly over each of them to see this vision, this 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 building, this structure that's put up before us where we find that we have justice or righteousness before God. And the first word is that, that we're justified, that we are declared righteous, that we are treated not merely as being innocent, but as being just, that God looks upon us and he names us as those who are law keepers, as those who are righteous, as those who are just. Reading this passage can be a little difficult because unlike the Greek in which it was originally written, in English we have two words, and they actually are both from the same Greek word. So in this passage, you're encountering the word righteousness on the one hand and just or justifier or justified on the other. It's the same idea. The idea of living in accord to God's expectations, to God's law, to the way God has made us to live living in a way that befits the kind of creatures that we are before our holy God. And God declares us righteous in Christ, not only as those who no longer bear sin, but as those who've received his law keeping, his righteousness. And we learn that that's, secondly, something that has redeeming power. Paul's mixing metaphors here. Being justified is a word from the courtroom. When you're there and all the evidence is in and the lawyers have made their cases and they've appealed to the judge or the jury and you are declared not only to be not guilty, but actually still further to be righteous and upstanding. And this verdict, it has freeing power. That's the language of redemption that's used here, that we are in fact redeemed in Christ Jesus, that we are set free. We're set free precisely because It's that notion that we might be unjust. 
It's that sense of the guilty conscience that hinders us. We may not name it that way very often, but we know, even as Damien was describing earlier, that that sense that we need to get ourselves up, get ourselves ready, prep to go into God's presence. The sense that unless we sort of put on airs and present a good face, a composed character, then God and others wouldn't have anything to do with us. Well, that leaves us oftentimes with a nagging suspicion that we're not doing it right. And that if we've got the nagging suspicion, others have probably got a greater clarity observing that we're not doing it right. And God, certainly seeing everything, will know that we're just playing along. And so it's not for nothing that we have to learn to sing, boldly, I approach your throne, because I've been freed from that kind of self-doubt, that kind of worry that I'm your child. I think of the comparison of two different images, one from the great musical Annie, where orphan Annie is brought into the mansion, and she's been shown around, and there's been the song and dance, and she's asked, what do you want to do next? And she looks around and she sort of ponders and she starts describing the order in which she's going to clean things because she can't imagine a world where others serve her. She can only imagine a world where she serves to to help others. We live spiritually that way, don't we? Believing that God can only look at us at best as servants and pretty crummy ones at that. Then I think of the image of uh, little JFK Jr., one of the most iconic images of the White House in uh, the Oval Office where his father, the president, is there at the perhaps the most significant desk in the entire world. They're in the most important square footage, politically speaking, in the entire earth. And this little child is just crawling around the desk. This remarkable image of comfort, of assurance, of boldness in approaching the throne. That's what's being described here, that we can know like that small child that our heavenly father, the judge, believes us to be righteous and just. And there's freedom in that. We see, though, third, that this is is a gift. This is something that is from the outside. It's of Christ Jesus. And Paul, again and again, uses that language of this being in Christ, not in ourselves. He'll go on in a couple chapters to say this three different ways. In Romans 5, verses 6, verse 8, and verse 10, he'll say, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were intrinsically unjust, while we were in and of ourselves at enmity with God, God reconciled us to himself by Christ's gift, by his grace. And he does that not once we've gotten it together. He does that out of his favor, out of his mercy, as we read. And he does that at great cost, because the fourth word that's used here is this really strange word that you never otherwise use, the word propitiation. It literally refers to a spot in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, where blood would be poured on the Day of Atonement, as it's described in the book of Leviticus, where God's wrath and anger at his people's sin once a year would be exhausted, where it would be poured out there so that it didn't have to be dispensed in a daily manner upon them. And we're told here that Jesus is that 
mercy seat where blood is poured, where blood has been shed and offered. And he is that so that God doesn't have to daily dispense his wrath and anger at our sin. And he is that so that God doesn't have to treat us as the lawless, unjust men and women that we are, but that he can treat us as his children, as beloved, as just and righteous. The fifth word that we find here is the one word that actually involves us and our action, that this, this gift of propitiation by his blood is received by faith. Notice you have to receive it. You have to ask yourself, have I actually received this, Christ, as the propitiation, the mercy seat, the place where God's wrath on my behalf has been exhausted? But you receive it by faith. You know, Christianity is funky among other religions for a number of reasons, but chief among them is that we talk about faith. Other religions don't talk about faith. They do not call themselves faiths. That's good Christian colonialism when we refer to them that way. Christianity is unique in commending faith because faith is unique among human action in describing how we depend on someone outside of ourselves. Faith is a strange action. It's really the only action at its root that doesn't find its strength in the one doing it, but in its object. That's why when you call someone trusting, you are not complimenting them, right? You're speaking of their gullibility. They're easily taken in. They trust too easily. It's precisely because trust or faith, belief, is all about depending on the trustworthiness of the object, that they're well-intended to you and that they're going to be capable of pulling through on what they promise. And that's what God wants for us, the posture of open hands, the posture of owning our creaturely dependence, of living on borrowed breath spiritually. And that's why in just a minute, those of us who confess our faith and name Jesus as Lord will come again to practice that together, learning that we have to take him in, that we have to find strength from the outside, that we need him daily. And so we celebrate that together weekly as a reminder, partaking of his body and of his blood. And so just as the text points to our deepest need, it also points in these Interesting, distinctive words to the nature of Christ's gift, his solution to that need. And we could, we could again find this addressed as questions. Have you embraced God's offering on your behalf? Can you imagine that kind of real closure, real freedom, real peace, real boldness because of something that Jesus has done for you? And are you turning from your intuitive bent to contribute, to throw in, to add, to supplement, to make it whole as it were? Are you turning from that and delighting in living by faith, in trusting him? So the text reveals our deep need, our deepest need. It reveals the beauty of God's gift in Christ. But I think there's actually a third thing we see the gift of the just God. And this is where the text ends. In verses 25 and 26, we read this. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, the God of the Old Testament gets a bad rap in our day and age because of things like wars, religious wars, described in Deuteronomy or Joshua, Ezra, Nehemiah. The God of the Old Testament is oftentimes thought of as a a miser, a scrooge, someone who's so demanding. It's interesting, though, actually to read the Old Testament. If you think about the law of the Old Testament and the law of the Old Testament God, the God of Israel, it's summarized very succinctly in Exodus 21, beginning in verse 24. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Sometimes referred to it as the lex talionis, the, the, the eye for an eye principle of law, right? Equal market value. If, if I go out and I accidentally run over your dog in the middle of the street, you get my dog, right? Fair market value is offered for sin. And that sounds oftentimes like it's really high, but actually that's to reduce vigilante response where I accidentally kill your dog and you like wipe out my whole family, which was the way it was done back in the day. But fair market value for sin is the standard practice in the book of Exodus and in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. Except in one case, there is one person who does not get fair market value for sin. If, if I take out your dog, you, a creature, get equivalent value covered. You'll be made whole. If the God of the universe is sinned against by me, he gets a dove. He gets a sparrow. He gets a little bit of the fruit of the field. The only person, oddly enough, who doesn't get made whole, according to the laws of the Old Testament, is really the only person who's most significant, is God. God, again and again, is dispensing grace and mercy seemingly on the cheap. I mean, seriously, think about it. David, who I already referred to, is a punk. You don't want to elect David to office. You don't want to be married to David. You don't want to be a soldier in David's army. David does all sorts of terrible things. And it's wonderful that he prays Psalm 51 and he's repentant. But think about how quickly God forgives. Far from being a stingy miser, God is so eager to offer mercy. God is so eager to put that sin away as far as the east is from the west. So far, his transgressions have been put away from us. And that's great because that's the only hope we like David have, right? We're unjust. We too have fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul is reflecting here on how it seems to be the case that in being kind to us, God is a terrible judge, right? Notice what verses 25 and 26 actually say. This, the blood of Christ being shed on the cross, it is not to show that we can be saved, God's been doing that for years. God's in the salvation business. The God of Israel has been redeeming punks for centuries. No, this is to show God's justice because in his divine forbearance, he's passed over former sins. It's to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one whose faith in Jesus. In other words, God has been dispensing mercy on the cheap, it seems, and Jesus is offered, this costly sacrifice is offered on our behalf so that God can show that in dispensing mercy, he is not doing it on the cheap. 
He's not doing it somehow flippantly. He's not shirking his law. I think years ago, as I was living in South Florida, just after the recession, I would sometimes flip on the TV and you'd see the Saturday morning real estate auction. And it was so depressing because they would begin with a house at a certain number and no one flinches. And they keep dropping and dropping and dropping. Of course, some of you, your, your blood pressure is going up right now because you remember this experience personally. But I was just a sort of a voyeur watching this. And the price would go down and eventually you'd hit the point of about a quarter of the beginning bid and someone would finally flinch. And the auctioneer would so quickly sell that thing for whatever someone would pay. The bank would so happily get it off their books. We oftentimes think about God and his justice like that. Like God demanded perfection and that didn't work out. And then God gave us the law in the Old Testament and that was a pretty high, tall order. And now God is happy, just, just give him some faith. Just give him some faith. We, we sometimes look at God as though his justice is dispensable at the cost of his mercy. His justice is the price of showing favor to sinners like you and me. But you know what? While that might be immediately beneficial, that doesn't make God the kind of person you'd want to spend forever with. Right? I mean, you can be doing business with somebody. You can be going through some sort of deal or transaction, and they can do something in your favor that involves them reneging on promises made to others or protocols defined in how their business ought to run. And that may be immediately advantageous to you. But in the long run, doesn't that raise questions? Questions about their character, questions about their trustworthiness, questions about their commitment to you and whether or not it's any more solid than the commitment to whatever law, rule, or promise they'd just broken for your advantage. Friends, one thing we see in the gospel is that God doesn't merely show us mercy, but he willingly sends his son to die so that in showing us mercy, he upholds his law. His mercy doesn't come at the cost of his justice, but his justice is fulfilled in that costly gift of Jesus Christ so that when we know that we're brought in and when we boldly come to his throne, he's the kind of God that you would want to be with because you know that his word is rock solid. You know that his law bears his character. And you know that the fact that he calls you righteous and beloved now is something he will never renege on because he's not in the reneging business. He doesn't default on what he's demanded. Psalm 111 verse 7, sorry, Psalm 11 verse 7 says, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. We might think, well, that's not going to work for me. I don't, I don't feel very righteous. And these verses have told me that I'm unrighteous and unjust. And we might think that for a solution to be offered, God's got to tone down what he expects. But friends, what we find in this passage is that Jesus ramps up what he offers. He doesn't just dispense mercy on the cheap, but he makes it whole himself. He bears our burdens. He is the man of sorrows. He is our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. And that is the crazy upside down wisdom that is from God, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.30. That in being all of that, we can understand why God 
in Exodus 34 is called not only gracious, but truthful. And when Jesus comes and appears, according to John 1, we're told that the word becomes flesh and he is among us full of grace and truth. He's not only the gift of grace, but he's the demonstration that God is truthful, that God isn't bending the rules. God isn't defaulting on his demands. God isn't somehow reneging on his commitments. God is doing everything necessary to ensure that we can be with him forever. And that, I would submit, is the kind of God you can get behind. That is the kind of God not only you could be happy to receive a gift from now, but you could actually be happier to be with the giver forever. And isn't that one of the great gifts of the gospel? That in diagnosing our problem and in offering a solution, it actually alerts us to our greater delight. That our sin and our lawlessness is in fact our deepest fundamental problem precisely because our deepest fundamental need is to be with God, the one for whom we're made. And so as we wrap up looking at this passage and as you prepare to go this day, Think also of these questions. Do you delight not just in the gift of the gospel, but the greater gift of the one who himself is the giver of the gospel? Do you see, as St. Augustine says, that Christ not only gives us what we want or what we need, but he helps us to want and need what he longs to give us, namely himself. It matters not just what God gives us, but also how. Not only how we're giving it, but who we're giving it from. Let's pray and ask that God might show us not just our need and his provision, but his beauty and the delight that we might find in being with him. Lord, we thank you that Christ has been put forward. He is our legal substitute, our lawlessness, our sin, our impurity, our shame. These have all been borne by him and on the cross, his Shed blood has been offered so that your anger and wrath have been put away and exhausted. And we can know boldness. We can know peace. We can even know delight. Not just that you've made it all right, but that you've made a way that we might be with you. And in making a way in this costly fashion, we are all the more entranced. We pray that you would deepen in us a delight, not just for the good stuff you give us, but for the goodness we see in your character, the beauty we see and have sung of in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that as we gratefully receive your many gifts, we might be transformed more and more to be taken with you, that we might be drawn to meditate on and commune with you, especially as we come to your table, remembering that you provide gifts for this day, gifts for judgment day, gifts for eternity to come, and that the greatest gift is the gift of yourself, shown so manifestly in the costly sacrifice of your son on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen.